You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. I guess today on Uncommentary has written a fascinating and I think important book. It's called The Gates of Hell, An Untold Story of Faith and Perseverance in the Early Soviet Union. Matthew Heisey is director of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Previously, he was a missionary for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, for over a decade serving in countries including Russia, Ukraine, and the country of Georgia. Uh, this is a story of faithfulness. It's a story of persecution. Uh, it's even, I believe, the story of martyrdom. And um, in, in our day, in which there's a lot of faux persecution uh, in the United States especially, it's good to be reminded that historically Christians have suffered, and they've suffered unto death. Uh, and when real suffering starts, it looks a lot different than uh, being smacked around on Twitter a little bit by uh, somebody that you don't agree with. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It was a lot of fun to set up. And uh, if you're watching the video portion of it or any of the video portion of it, uh, you'll see that uh, that it's an unusual situation. Matthew's a great guy, though. Good, good, good content. And I hope you're going to enjoy this. My guest today is Matthew Heisey. He's the director of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Previously, he was a missionary for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, for over a decade, serving in uh, countries like Russia, Ukraine, and Georgia. And for those of you who are in the south of the United States, that's not the state of Georgia. That's the country of Georgia. Uh, although, you know, maybe the state of Georgia does need a Lutheran missionary. Who knows? Uh, but Matthew Heisey, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you, Marty. Good to be with you. So, um, you're as far you probably are a household name in Michigan, but I'm going to tell you that when you get down into the South, you're not as much of a household name, I don't think. So uh, maybe uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not a household name anywhere, but uh, <laughs> except my own household. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, um, and it ties in really with the interest I have here. Uh, I have been the director of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation now for eight years. And what we do is we translate, publish, distribute, and introduce uh, Christian books. Uh, at first, it was books in Russian, oh, primarily wow. because we were founded by Reverend Robert Run 30 years ago Wow! Uh, with the Soviet Union opening up. So mm -hmm. this book is actually kind of a, a precursor, a, a reason why you had to come back into what was then the Soviet Union. Ah. And, and I have my own personal uh, story with that, too, because my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, Friedrich and Matilda Heise, were uh, Germans, Lutheran members of the Lutheran Church in Russia, mm -hmm. uh, in Imperial Russia under the Tsars. And they came to America shortly before the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, oh, wow. for which we are all eternally grateful yeah. uh, because yeah. we know what happened. I know what happened to their country yeah. after that. And and so I've had a fascination with the land, even traveling to the Soviet Union as a tourist in mm -hmm. 1986, about a month or two after Chernobyl. So everybody wow. knows I'm nuts. I'm either yeah. a Russophile or I'm nuts. <laughs> Probably a little bit of all those things together. <laughs> and I am I am blessed uh, blessed to be married to Raz Heisey. My my wife is a dentist from Kiev, oh, uh, nice. a, a Ukrainian citizen. Uh, wow. We are hoping to begin uh, American citizenship uh, this year. That's so, awesome. Uh, that's a little bit of my background. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that makes you the man for the uh, story that you tell in your book, The Gates of Hell. Um, so I'm going to confess to you and anybody listening that. 
this is a part of history, uh, one of the many, many parts of history, I should say, about which I have very little knowledge. Uh, but your your book is so heavily documented, 63 or 65 pages of footnotes, something like that. Then there's 13 pages of references. And I only counted English, German, and Russian. There could have been Italian or French in there, that too. Okay. You got it. <laughs> um, so extensively documented. Uh, I was, I'm thoroughly impressed by the quality of your scholarship. Um, but because I don't know an enormous amount about this time period and the history you're writing about, uh, I'm just going to let you kind of tell the story. I'll give you a question every now and then or something like that. But uh, the first question I want to ask you, and this is a short answer question, is how long did it take you to write this book? Um, probably six years, seven okay. years. I was working while I was doing yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, I was teaching at a seminary in Russian, so I had to prepare my notes in Russian. Uh, wow. I, I could I could do a story on all my my mistakes in Russian too. Uh, don't and for example, I mean, there there don't tell people that you have a higher degree in education in Russian and leave out a syllable because then you might tell yes. them you had a higher circumcision. Uh, so I, I, I've got my share of share of mistakes, you could say. Uh, but uh, you know, at, at least while I was doing that teaching and preparing, I would uh, use my free time to go to Russian archives. Mm. And I would go and visit with people whose fathers were martyred, were martyred mm. Lutheran pastors, uh, people who were relatives of the martyrs, and, and receive firsthand accounts and pictures. So um, I'm grateful to Lexham Press for using the ones that they did. I yeah. have so many more, wow. actually. So it was constantly compiling the information. And then one very snow-laden winter, as I was switching from becoming a missionary uh, for Missouri Synod in Russia to the director of Lutheran Heritage Foundation. I had about a three-month window, and I just sat and wrote. I went back home to my folks' house. I wrote to the early hours of the morning. I gathered all my information. And when my dad got up at six in the morning, I helped him snow because it was, it was an especially snow-laden winter. Wow. But uh, really, really did that work. Um, and that was the bulk of the work. But then I, I just kept writing and compiling mm -hmm. uh, over the years. And uh, I'm truly grateful to Lexham Press for uh, and editor Todd Haynes for giving me the opportunity to share this story because mm -hmm. it's a story of people that I spoke to. It's a story of, of what I've, I've always been interested in Russia of, of, of what was going on in the background. Mm -hmm. But I want to tell the story of ordinary believers and what they were up against when the Bolsheviks took power in Russia. So um, for background, take us all the way back to kind of the beginning of the book. You start when um, some folks are, have migrated into Russia and things are semi-free. They're able to build a pretty substantial network of churches and schools and ministries. Uh, yeah, and, then, and then bad things happen. So go ahead with that. Okay, sure. Uh, it, actually, um, it, and... Of course, my focus is, is primarily Lutheran church, but I think it's Christianity in general. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, Lutheran congregations were forming 20 years after Martin Luther's death wow. in the mid-16th century. And uh, uh, But the Lutheran church, like many other churches, Roman Catholic, uh, uh, were, were basically ethnic churches. Mm. Uh, ethnic Russians could not belong to a Lutheran church. They could only belong to the state Orthodox church. Uh, until the early years of the last century and, and a few uh, uh, legislative reforms 
and so oddly enough, they had some freedom, mm-hmm. but they were never seen as maybe Russian citizens per se. Mm-hmm. And in particular, during World War One, many of these German Lutherans were accused of being collaborators uh, with the uh, Imperial German forces. And, and so they uh, they were persecuted. They could not preach in German. And in 1915 in Moscow, there was an infamous pogrom where about five or six were murdered and uh, German businesses were sacked and destroyed. So when the Bolsheviks came to power in 1917, there was this feeling like, could it be any worse than what we've right. been experiencing? Well, eventually, yes, mm. was the answer, but not at first. At first, the Bolsheviks went after the largest state church. And I do talk a little bit about that. The Russian Orthodox Church uh, was the church that they went after first. And the 1920s allowed Protestants uh, a little bit of leeway, a little bit of freedom, uh, more freedom than they had had in the past. Mm. So they were actually able to form a seminary in Leningrad in the mid-1920s. Wow. That is, the Lutherans were able to do that. So there was this feeling like, okay, uh, our schools are now outlawed, which is what the Bolsheviks did. Uh-huh. They separated church and state. And they said, your church buildings no longer belong to you. Your schools no longer belong to you. You can still worship in your churches, but you can't actually have a a Christian school. You can't teach Mm. the Bible in the school. And so this is what went on in those schools, unfortunately, at that time. Then there were, um, in that same time period or just following, uh, some pretty strong restrictions uh, started on, on pastors, the clergy. Uh, lost a lot of rights. Churches lost property and assets. Um, was that during Bolshevism or was that uh, following that? Yeah, that was that was right after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, they began to, uh, they had, there was a civil war uh, because not all Russian citizens were, were, were very fond of the Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they're called Bolsheviks, which in Russia means, uh, Bolshevsko means majority, but actually they were a minority. Uh. And, and, they used that that phrase, but they were really a minority. And so many people were opposed to them. And so there was this famous civil war in the early 1920s between what they called the Reds, the communists or Bolsheviks, mm-hmm. and the whites. And the whites were just uh, people who had been supporters of the czar or other other ethnic groups, businessmen, mm-hmm. etc. And so there was this, this battle between the two. And many people suffered, including these Lutheran parishioners I talk about. And this is when Americans began to become involved in Russia in the early 1920s. Mm. Um, in particular, Dr. John Moorhead was a president of Roanoke College in Southern Virginia. And he went over after World War I to try and gather uh, some support for people who had suffered during the war. And he was invited into the Soviet Union by Theophil Meyer, a Lutheran pastor in Moscow. And once he saw what happened in in the Soviet Union, uh, he made it his life's goal to to do whatever he could to assist the people as well as the church itself. Mm. Um, Persecution eventually got worse and worse. How how does that uh, how did that narrative or how did that historical record read out? Uh, Dr. Moorhead? plays a pretty prominent role uh, through all this. Describe uh, who he was and what he eventually was able to accomplish in um, his life there. John Moorhead was uh, 
I, I like to say a Southern gentleman. He was, he was, uh, as, as one of his uh, biographers says, he, what, what he saw at the end of the war, uh, uh, it was as distant as Mars was from where he grew up in mm. Southern Virginia. Uh, so he wasn't accustomed to this, although he grew up shortly, you know, after the Civil War and during Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So he did see some of that in, uh, but nothing like the devastation of the continent of Europe after World War One, right. or what had happened in the Soviet Union, uh, the famine and uh, Civil War. So uh, John Moorhead became the head of what was called the National Lutheran Council, and he began to gather aid and assistance. He began to make trips there. And uh, as he did this, he befriended a young pastor by the name of Kurt Muss. And Kurt Muss also figures prominently in this book because John Moorhead got sick on a trip to the Volga and Kurt Muss took over for him. Uh, Kurt was a theology student at that time. Uh, but what happened is he was arrested by the Soviet officials who said, you know, he was spying on them mm -hmm. and helping the Americans. Mm -hmm. So although the Americans were providing aid um, and any Russian who helped them was suspicious. Mm -hmm. And so they arrested him as a spy. And John Moore had uh, made it his, his goal to make sure he got released no matter what he could do. And through intercession and great prayer, God answered their prayers in a few years and, and Kurt was released. But uh, Moorhead uh, never forgot him, never forgot all the people in Russia and, and so he continued to assist them up until his death in 1936. And shortly before his death, he was actually nominated, was going to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize wow. by Herbert Hoover, who was the, the former president. Hoover was mm -hmm. actually a good friend of his because Americans often think of Herbert Hoover as the Depression era president. But Herbert Hoover was revered in Europe because Basically, he helped feed Europe after World War One, ah. and he also assisted the Russians through a program called ARA, the American Relief Administration. And even when I was a missionary there, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, I would run into Russians who remembered ARA and remembered that and always respected the Americans because they said, you fed our people wow. when we needed it most. So. Hoover was highly respected, and Franklin Roosevelt was going to also nominate him, but he died, uh, unfortunately. Actually, on the day of his wife's funeral, he died. Mm -hmm. So both of them went to heaven together shortly. Your, um, the book features an image on the cover that you reference uh, inside the book, uh, and it's a ordination party uh, in, yeah. in Crimea. Um, and as I remember, several of the people that are in this photograph, it looks like there's nine, maybe ten in this photograph, uh, didn't make it, uh, to their, the end of their natural life. They were sent to the gulag or something like that. Talk about some of those folks and how it was that they ended up being exiled. Yes. I, I received this photo actually from the great granddaughter of one of the gentlemen on the far right corner. He's got mm. this large white mane and this big white beard. And he is pastor Ferdinand Herschelman jr. And his great granddaughter gave me the photo, um, it was his son's ordination, actually, and his son is over on the far left of the picture. Uh, and uh, in that picture, which was taken in the Crimea in uh, 1918, um, there were all these pastors and their wives and children celebrating in the summer when all the fruits are up. Crimea mm -hmm. is a beautiful area uh, celebrating this ordination. 
within 12 years, five of them will be martyred, wow. including both Herschelmans, the father and son, who die in gulag camps. So it's uh, it, it's kind of a calmed of before the storm picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, even even his young son, who is sitting in the front, or is is ultimately going to be murdered by by communists. So it's uh, uh, you look at it and you can't help but just feel the sadness of, of what is going to happen to them. What mm-hmm. is what is coming and they don't see it coming. Yeah. Uh, this is Marty Duran. You're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is Matthew Heise. He's written The Gates of Hell, an untold story of faith and perseverance in the early Soviet Union. Fascinating book, uh, important story. We'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Well, in the historical progression, uh, there's a leap at some point from where the Bolsheviks uh, began to confiscate church property, church assets. Uh, you mentioned in the book, one of the uh, larger Lutheran churches lost something like a, a million dollars worth of property or millions of dollars equivalent worth of property. Uh, there were $750,000. I guess that's at, at that point in time, that value uh, was confiscated from some uh, some other group. Pastors lost uh, certain privileges that they had previously had regarding uh, schooling and costs of living and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's bad enough. That certainly qualifies, I guess, as, as persecution. Uh, but it, it eventually got worse. So describe any pivot that was in there at some point and then how sure. we get from there to people actually being sent to the gulags. Yeah. Well, um, especially in the 1920s, you, you've got this kind of mixed signal from the Soviet government. Uh, because there, there is some freedom to operate. You can actually have a seminary. You can actually put out a church publication, a church journal. Mm-hmm. But then there are the details. And, mm-hmm. of course, you have the Soviet editors who say, we're striking that from the article. We're striking that from the article. Okay. And by the late 1920s, it gets to the point that you can't even really put out a journal. Mm-hmm. And then the property, of course, is is a continual battle because the Soviets – see this property it's it's prime real estate yeah and and so they want to take over a lot of these buildings uh, but there's still enough believers and one of the interesting things that i found uh, in my studies i think a lot of times we we think that the bolsheviks come into power and they immediately take complete authority but there's still enough of a desire to fight back and mm. say no we're not going to allow you to do this and they are poor enough, meaning the Soviet state, that they mm-hmm. need the money from the West. 
And so they know they'll say to the pastors, they'll say, hey, we, we know you're getting money from the West and they're watching what we do, but mark our words, we're going to close you eventually. Uh, it's going to happen. And uh, so for a lot of the ministers and the churches and congregations, they think, you know, step by step, let's just keep hanging on. And for Lutherans, it's always kind of a little bit of a battle because we take Romans 13 very seriously that we honor the power and the authorities right. because they are ordained by God. And, and so there are some who say, well, they don't want us to teach Sunday school anymore because when Stalin took complete power in 1928, Joseph Stalin uh, passed a law then in 1929 on April 8th concerning religious associations. And basically, he bans Sunday school teaching mm -hmm. in the church. You can't teach kids there. Okay. So some say, well, we just have to wait till they grow up and, and you know, just somehow hope that they'll continue to follow our guidance and our leading as mm -hmm. Christian parents. Um, but others say, no, if we don't teach them, they're lost because they could see the atheist worldview was beginning to take hold. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets now were beginning to teach materialistic atheism in the schools. Uh, they were not content just to preach against religion. They were preaching atheism mm. and materialism. Mm -hmm. And so as they do this, uh, some pastors begin to recognize, if we don't teach these kids now, they will be lost mm -hmm. and our church will die. And we won't have any seeds to plant in the future years. So they begin to think up a plan. And the two pastors I, I focus on in particular, there are many, but Helmut Hansen and uh, Kurt Muss in the late 1920s in Leningrad decide, okay, we can't teach kids in the church anymore. What we'll do is we will gather the Sunday school teachers, mostly young people, although there is one woman, Maria Weisberg, who was 63 mm -hmm. and uh, my age of all things. <laughs> I, I think of that, that the 63-year-old woman, I've got a picture of her from the, from the what was then the KGB, the NKVD day from their files, you wow. know, getting a profile of her at wow. the age of 63 because she was a Sunday school teacher. Mm. And uh, they gather these Sunday school teachers once a week in their apartments and they teach them the lesson for the next Sunday. And then when Sunday comes, they split them up into apartments all throughout Leningrad and gather three or four kids per mm -hmm. apartment. And this is what they think that they'll be able to do. But right before Christmas in 1929, uh, the Soviets arrest the pastors and arrest over 30 of these Sunday school teachers. Mm -hmm. And this is really the bellwether because once they arrest them, people realize these guys are serious mm -hmm. and they send them off to labor camps. The two pastors never returned to freedom. They are ultimately executed in 1937. Wow. Um, but these teachers, uh, the younger ones in particular, only serve a short time and then are released. Some continue to keep the faith and continue to, to gather people, but others say, uh, this is dangerous. In fact, one of uh, the interviews that I got access to from friends of mine in St. Petersburg uh, he was the nephew of Kurt Muss. His name was Eric Muss, and he died, I think, in about 2008. Mm. And they interviewed him in his latter years, and he basically said, Mama told us, don't go to church. It only causes trouble. Wow. Don't go. And so he grew up outside of the church because he said he saw what happened to his father. He saw what happened to his uncle and his other uncle. All three were were, were martyred. So... You know, this is what they wanted to do. Stalin wanted to create this fear 
And so when you begin to send pastors out to the gulag uh, and you begin to change the work week, I mean, Mm -hmm. you had seven days, they changed it to five days. And among workers, they split up the the work day. So you say you would work four days, the next day would be your day off and then four more days of work. So nobody knew what a Sunday was. And then they, didn't they also like stagger? Uh, so everybody didn't work the same day. So they staggered and then even within the same household, they would stagger. So the families couldn't be, I just learned about that like a week and a half ago. Yeah. And it lasted for a few years before they went back to the old system. But what it did was (laughs) when they back to the real calendar. (laughs) Yeah. The real calendar. Well, it's, it's, it's strange because what they did was then of course you couldn't gather for Sunday services. So they would try to hold them in the evenings which also maybe wasn't so bad because it was darker and mm-hmm. you could kind of slip into the church. But you would still have, you know, the secret police would send their young hooligans there, would throw yeah. stones at people. Uh, and who would take notes? Who's mm-hmm. going into church? Um, mm-hmm. So there was there was pressure placed on people. Now, I can remember uh, as a kid myself, I'm, I'm going to guess I would have been maybe 10 years old. So this would have been in 1973-ish. Um somebody came to our church and they, they had created a ministry where they were sending portions of the Bible. So I got a list of Russian names and addresses, none of which I knew anything about and a a stack of, you know, the first three chapters of John or whatever it was. And so it was my responsibility to put those in an envelope, which was provided an airmail envelope and address them and then mail them from my house with my name on it to somebody I never knew in Russia. And they, they would get all these different portions of the scriptures from these different places. And I guess this is all the people in the same house church or whatever. Then they would collate these and they would form a Bible out of them. And this was, this would have been in the early 1970s. Of course, I don't know anything about what happened on the other I end. I did the same thing. Did you really? Okay. I think, I think we worked probably through the same ministry. Yeah, okay. They, they would, you would send scripture portions yes. to people. Okay. So, uh, so my question is, since that was in the 1970s, the time frame that you're talking about right now is in the 1920s and 30s. Right. What happened in between? I mean, this is a long period of time for this kind of oppression and persecution to be taking place. Is there a story in between those periods? Uh, there probably is. And, and, and I, I would need to sit down and really gather it. But, but mm. from people that I talk to, um, uh, people would keep Bibles if they had them under the floorboards. Mm. Um, so uh, that that was a way to kind of, uh, you know, if anybody suspicious came in, you kept your Bible, but the family knew where it was. It was under the floor. Yeah. You'd pull up the board and pull it out. I have a, actually, when I was teaching, I had a student who was, uh, let's see, Edward was probably born in the early 80s. So before the Soviet Union fell in 1991, even in the 1980s, uh, he lived in a village in Karelia, which is closer to Finland. And he said that the grandmas and some of our parents would hold a Bible study. And we were the kids who would look at, if you saw any strange looking car coming into the village, yeah. we would run into the house and say, somebody's coming. <laughs> right. And the Bible study would turn into a birthday party. Wow. And they would hide the Bibles yeah. that they still yeah. had. Uh, I've seen some of these older Bibles that they, they shared um Bishop Ari Kugape, with whom I worked uh, for, for many years, is an amazing guy because uh, in the late 80s, when things started to change, the KGB, he actually is in the book, the KGB asked him to inform on his parishioners. Mm. And he said, I, I won't do that. Yeah. But he would gather the old Bible uh, from the grannies 
Mm -hmm. and and gather people in the field and preach from that. Wow. You mentioned that your wife uh, is from Ukraine, and part of this story is actually uh, from Ukraine, part of your history that you tell. And you mentioned a pastor, I'm going to try to say his name, Johan Vol. Right. Um, Good. Very good. So where, in relation to what we're hearing in the news, say, as far as Russia's invasion at this point, where was he located, and what's his significance in this story? Um, yeah, he, he's, he is just like uh, a pastor like Curtin was, the one who saw that if I do not teach the next generation, they will be lost. Mm. So Johann Vol is uh, actually in what is called Neusatz. And you wouldn't think of that there's all these little German villages dotting throughout Ukraine. <laughs> I've been to many of them. Yeah. And it's, it's surprising. You still see the old churches, wow. some that are left. And he is from the village of what is called today Rozivka. It is 40 miles north of Mariupol. Wow. And those who follow the news understand, yeah. you know, what happened at the Azov wow. steel plant there. Just 40 miles north. It is literally on the front lines of the battle. Mm. Um, I taught students in Ukraine, and I'm, I'm so proud of the fact that many of them are from Dnipro and Odessa, and they're running goods and, and, and support mm. and praying for people who are in harm's way. So Vol was literally at that time, 100 years ago, was right in the heart of the battle there. And in 1923, so yeah, we are almost 100 mm-hmm. years ago, he uh, understands that the communist state says you can't confirm anybody now under the age of 18. Wow. So that goes into effect in 1924. He can't confirm anyone. He can't teach anyone. And so he thinks, I've got to do something. What do I, what can I do? So in 1925, he thinks, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold catechism sermons. And I'm going to have teach from the catechism of Luther during services. And that way I'll educate them. And so when Confirmation Day comes in 1925, then he has a total of about 414 kids. Wow. Um, no, actually, I believe it was 26. 414 kids. Uh, he's got gathered because he didn't have a confirmation class mm-hmm. before. So here he is, uh, you know, uh, trying to, and, and the church is so packed. They said even the, even the secret agents couldn't get in. So they were not too <laughs> happy about that, but, but they realize, okay, now you can't do this. So he thinks, but he, he's thinking, and, and they're literally, they literally ask a young boy, they say, who, who was actually uh, mentally handicapped somewhat. And, and they asked the young boy, you know, what is this pastor teaching you? Mm. And he said, the pastor teaches us to come to Jesus. And Pastor Full says, he gets it. <laughs> At least he gets it. <laughs> yeah. he, gets, he gets the basic message, come to Jesus. And so he realizes he wants to get into more depth. So the next year, what he does is from like seven in the morning to eight at night for a couple months before confirmation, he gathers uh, he teaches three, four kids at a time and just exhaust himself mm. so that he can do this. Uh, but then a couple of years later, he is literally arrested after the church service. Uh, the secret agents come in with their guns and escort him out. I, mean, I always tell people when I'm, I'm talking to churches, I say, you know, think of somebody coming to your pastor at the end of the service and saying, come with us and holding him at gunpoint and taking him out of the church. Wow. And so Pastor Fole was arrested. He eventually, unlike others, he did not die. He immigrated to West Germany Mm. and heard still at the end of his life that many of these kids who still now had to live in the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. wrote to him and said, the lesson still took. Wow. They're still coming to Jesus. Wow. So, you know, he knew that if he didn't do this, 
they would be lost. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at how some, and they don't per- portray themselves as, as great heroes. They just mm-hmm. say, this is what we do. So your book is called the gates of hell, which of course is a reference to Jesus conversation with his disciples. Um, why is it significant? Uh, there, I mean, persecution has been taking place since the early church. Uh, there's probably never been a period of time where uh, Christians haven't been persecuted at some place on the earth. Some, t- you know, more sometimes more substantially than others. Uh, Christians in America will scream persecution at the drop of a hat. Um, I mean, if you know if their Twitter account gets closed down, it's because they're being persecuted for Jesus' sake, uh, which is totally different than the the story that you're telling. But there are lessons that we can learn. There are takeaways that are important uh, for us. Uh, what's a couple of things that when you think about it, you find we can find hope in the stories of persecution? I, I should remind people, too, that uh, I have a translator uh, in Somalia who was stoned literally mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. We have the picture of him bloodied and wow. he was threatened again last month. And, and so we, we pray for him because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is a reality for many people in the world. But uh I think some of the things that we can take, and and I kind of quote Bishop Malmgren, where he says that he said, no individual church is promised uh, to last until Christ's second mm-hmm. coming, that his church was going to die. He mm-hmm. said, we are going to die. It is imminent. And what we need to do, of course, is is preserve the faith with as many people as we can. And, and we have to understand and, and see, I think, the signs of the times. This is one of the things that I think some of these pastors in the 20s, they saw it coming. Mm. Kurt Muss saw it coming. Yeah. He said, if I don't teach this new generation, they will all of a sudden change. They will begin to march with the red flags. They will begin to denounce their parents. They will begin to denounce their faith. And, and, and I, have to, I have to portray, I have to give them the truth of Christ and that means you might suffer for it and, and die for it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he did. And, and many of those people came back in the church in the 1990s and they remembered him. Wow. They talked about him. They had stories about this pastor because wow. they knew what he did. And, and so they understood that, you know, faithfulness to Christ does not say that the path will be rosy, but you know what? He has promised us a, a blessed repose in heaven. Mm-hmm. He has, he has, he has died for us. He has given us hope. And, and that message permeates the book, despite the sadness. I know yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a sad thing to read. And yet I want people to understand these are the, the martyrs who wash their robes in the blood of the yeah. Lamb. They, they are Amen. the faithful ones yeah. who have remained. And, and, and they're not great heroes. They don't portray themselves as that. But that shows what the Holy Spirit can do in the hearts of people and strengthening them. I once worked, worked with a Georgian preacher, an evangelist, and uh, my brother Zaza, uh, he once told me, he, he said, you know, when, when a guy puts a gun to your head and asks you what you believe, isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit gives you such strength and power? Mm. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that I was a pimply-faced kid who slid in the <laughs> yeah. back row of my church when I was a teenager. I have no clue what that's, what that's like. But he does. Yeah. And so many others do. Yeah. That's awesome. The book is The Gates of Hell, An Untold Story of Faith and Perseverance in the Early Soviet Union. It's published by Lexham Press. Matthew Heisey, thanks so much for being. I hope this book does well. This is the, uh, These stories need to be told. 
Um, so if you, um, this is, this is the kind of book to be a great gift as well. I don't say that about very many books where I interview the authors. This really is a great book for, for giving to someone, uh, to build their faith and to help them be encouraged. So, uh, thank you for this and God bless you, brother. Thank you so much for having me, Marty. Appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcasts.